TheWellnessCouch.com, streaming wellness into your lives. This is That Paleo Show with your hosts, Stephanie Wozelik, Dr. Yana James, and Dr. Brett Hill. Welcome to That Paleo Show, making the paleo lifestyle easy and accessible for everyone. I'm Stephanie Wozelik. I'm Dr. Yana James. And I'm Dr. Brett Hill. Today we have a really cool interview lined up with the one and only Anthony Colpo, who's actually the first Aussie we've interviewed on the show. As we've said in previous podcasts, paleo is just a framework that dictates the type of food you should be eating. So it's not a low or high carb diet per se. And we know that all of our listeners do paleo a little bit differently, like the three of us do. Even so, I know many of you are still trying to fit into one mold or another and wish there was a definitive answer about what was best for everyone. The problem is that no one paleo structure is perfect for everyone, which is why we want to interview people with all sorts of different philosophies about the paleo framework. Anthony Colpo is an independent researcher, physical conditioning specialist, and the author of The Fat Loss Bible and The Great Cholesterol Con. His blog tagline is, never mind the bollocks, here's the science which is true because most of his posts are really long and meticulously researched. He also calls it like he sees it and confronts the standard paradigm head-on, which tends to stir the pot. (laughs) To give you an example, some of his recent blog titles are New Report, Low Salt Recommendations Based on Poor Science, and What a Russian Gun Designer Can Teach You About Successful Weight Loss. Anthony has quite a story to share, so we'll get right into it. Anthony, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. It's great to have you too, Anthony. To get us started today, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you became so passionate about health? Okay, well, I guess it goes back to when I was 21. Um, prior to that, I've always been physically active, but prior to prior to that, I really didn't pay much attention to diet um, until the day I went to see a doctor and he told me I had moderately high cholesterol. And I know well, what does that mean? He goes, oh, that places you at moderately increased risk of heart disease and he goes you've got to bring that level down to lower your risk and he gave me some literature you know with dietary recommendations this was back in 1989 so I guess this was before the whole statin thing so there was no mention of sort of medication but you know a lot of sort of dietary suggestions and they all pretty much revolved around reducing fat intake and saturated fat intake especially yeah I started instituting some of the recommendations and what he actually gave me was fairly mild. It wasn't sort of this whole radical low-fat predicant type thing. It was just, I guess, your standard health authority type, um, you know, cholesterol handout type material. And then, um, of course, I started, I went away and started sort of researching the matter on my own and sort of came across all this really sort of hardcore low-fat stuff. And this was back, yeah, sort of, you know, stretching into the early 90s when the whole low-fat thing was really at its peak. And, of course, I read all this material saying you've got to really, you know, lower your fat intake. Saturated fat's really bad. It, you know, clogs your arteries. And I thought, this saturated fat stuff sounds really bad. I really need to get it out of my diet, you know. So, yeah, I started lowering my fat intake. I started doing the whole, you know, the whole grain thing, eating all these sort of whole grains, wheat and buckwheat and brown rice and... I don't know, you know, many whole grain, I was pretty much eating it at the time. And um, <laughs> what happened after a few years, I actually started to feel worse and couldn't really wonder why. And I thought, I'm supposedly doing all the right things here. I'm, you know, eating a nice, clean diet with all these healthy whole grains. I'm not eating much fat. And so I kind of soldiered on and 
of course, when you are in a scenario like that where things are sort of starting to go wrong, and but of course you're adhering to what supposedly is the right thing to do, you, I guess it takes a while for you to come around and realise that maybe these people have got it wrong. They might be, you know, prestigious health authorities and doctors, but maybe they've got it wrong. And so that's pretty much where I ended up sort of, I guess, looking beyond what we're told, looking beyond the face value of the advice we're given, and I started to dig deeper. And, yeah, when you start to dig deeper, it doesn't take long to realise that, you know, what is presented to us as fact and, you know, as official health wisdom often is very incorrect. And when you start looking for the science that we supposedly use to support this, you know, all this wisdom and all these official recommendations, a lot of the time it's just not there. It's just a lot of it is based on very flimsy science. It's based on assertions that were actually arrived at before the science was there to support it. The science actually came after and was sort of designed to support a conclusion that had already been reached by consensus by all these authorities so yeah, that's and I guess I first my first I guess skeptic type endeavour into all this health um, nutrition business was I guess the cholesterol theory because I guess that's how I got led into the whole you know eat healthy eat low fat thing and you know my father actually had heart disease and he didn't really receive any sort of useful advice and he ended up having another a second heart attack a really sort of major one six years after the first. And, yeah, on that second occasion, there was no second chance for him. And so, yeah, he died at only 55 years of age. And I just thought, well, you know, all this cholesterol sort of wisdom they have and, you know, all this other technology and all this supposed knowledge, why didn't it help him out? And when I looked into it, basically the answer to me was they're just barking up the wrong tree. Cholesterol does not cause heart disease. The whole cholesterol paradigm was based on fraudulent research conducted some 60 years ago by a certain individual named Ansel Keys. Um, that they didn't have any answers, any other sort of answers at the time for what might be causing heart disease. So they kind of ran with this cholesterol fat theory. Ansel Keys himself was a very sort of domineering, overbearing kind of individual. Apparently was used to getting his own way. He sort of um, was on the American Heart Association Nutrition Advisory Board. So his theories, I guess, combined with his sort of domineering manner and his connections took hold and basically here we are 60 years later still believing this myth that cholesterol causes heart disease when we've got decades of epidemiological studies, clinical trials um, showing that that's just not the case. There's just no evidence there. The only cholesterol-lowering intervention that's been shown, that's shown any kind of efficacy in lowering coronary mortality is statin drugs and you know we now know that they have what they call pleiotropic effects. They have a lot of effects inside the human body that are actually independent of cholesterol lowering. So, you know, when you combine that knowledge with the fact that all other dietary and drug cholesterol interventions of cholesterol lowering interventions have failed to lower heart disease, well that kind of suggests that there's something else going on that they're working by another mechanism. So when you look into it and you see they have anti inflammatory effects and they have anti-clotting effects, you know, among other things, that should tell you that, you know, really we need to take a whole new approach to this whole heart disease issue 
And, you know, I often get asked when I sort of, you know, sometimes I'm talking with people and we get onto this cholesterol topic and I sort of say my piece about it, how I think it's all nonsense. And then they, the inevitable question I get asked is, oh, so what does cause heart disease? And I sort of tend to reply that, well, there's several factors that would contribute, but I think the big one, the major one that we really need to start pouring a lot of research effort into is iron, bodily iron. And the reason that I've come to that conclusion is that, you know, it's long been known that women of premenopausal age have a much lower rate of heart disease. In fact, if you want to lower your mortality risk, probably the best thing you can do is be a premenopausal woman. Now, it's not practical for everyone, obviously, <laughs> but, um, you know, people go on about the French and the Japanese and, oh, they've got such a low rate of heart disease. Well, you know, right here in Australia and pretty much a lot of countries around the world, there's a population group that has an even lower risk, and that's, you know, premenopausal women. They have a remarkably low rate of heart disease. And once they hit menopause and they stop losing blood every month, their rate of heart disease rises dramatically to match men of the same age. Prior to that, men have a much higher rate of heart disease. Once women hit menopause, their risk of heart disease rises, and stroke rises dramatically. Now, for a long time, they used to say that, oh, that's the estrogen. The estrogen's protecting the women from, you know, from heart disease and stroke. And they were so convinced by this theory that back in the 60s, they actually conducted clinical trials where they gave men estrogen. And um, besides man boobs and making these guys cry a bit more, it really did nothing to lower their rate of heart disease. So they kind of gave up on this whole theory of, you know, giving men estrogen, but they still stuck with this belief that (laughs) estrogen lowers, you know, it's it's what protects women, premenopausal women against heart disease. And then back in 2004, you guys probably know, there was those, that rush of trials, you know, the big HRT trials that all failed to show any protection from, you know, hormone replacement therapy against heart disease. And I think one of those trials actually showed, if I remember correctly, I've written it in my book, um, but I think one actually showed an increased risk of stroke. One of those trials actually detected an increased risk of stroke from hormone replacement therapy. Yeah. Now... You know, for that kind of, there was a big sort of, you know, a lot, those trials got a lot of attention and I guess scared a lot of women off hormone replacement therapy and it put a big dent in this sort of theory that estrogen is what protects women from heart disease. And when you sort of look at the theory, just from a pure sort of basic logic point of view, you have to wonder why estrogen would protect women against heart disease, but testosterone would not protect men. I mean... When men are low, they become deficient in testosterone. A lot of bad things happen. Their bone density starts to weaken. They don't heal like they should. They start to lose muscle strength. They don't, you know, emotionally, they become a bit sort of, you know, wishy-washy. You know, there's a lot of things that in the male body that rely on testosterone to happen, a lot of good things. And, you know, testosterone deficiency is not, there's nothing protective about it. It's not a good thing for men to, to experience. So why if testosterone is so important for men, why would it not protect against heart disease the same way estrogen protects against heart disease for women? It's basically what the people who you know, purport this theory are saying is that Mother Nature basically just chose women to have, for reasons totally unknown, or, you know, chose women to have a lower rate of heart disease, which really doesn't make any sense. So, um, Anthony, I guess we've spoken a bit about sort of what doesn't work. Like, what, what should people who are listening, what should they be starting to think about in terms of preventing heart disease? 
Okay, first thing I would recommend is go out and get your serum filled and go to your doctor and say, Doc, I want an iron panel. I want you to run an iron panel and, you know, get him to do serum ferritin is the most important measure, but also your iron, your transparent saturation, your hemoglobin. It's good to know those measures as well. I'll explain why in a sec, but the reason serum ferritin is so important is, one, that's the most commonly sort of used measure of uh, reflector, it's the most accurate reflection of your total body iron stores. Now, we know that teenagers have serum ferritin levels around 25 premenopausal women tend to maintain those serum ferritin levels because of their, you know, their monthly blood loss and iron loss. Uh, men, once they sort of get into their 20s and beyond, their serum ferritin, their bodily iron stores start rising pretty much in a linear fashion. So the first thing I would do is go to my doctor and say, Doc, can you run a iron, iron panel? When you get the serum ferritin level back, ask him to read it out to you. Now, if it's below... Now, this is where it gets a little... Uh, here in Australia, deficiency or low iron is considered to be below 30 micrograms per litre, uh, you know, serum ferritin measure below 30. In America, I believe it's below 20. Um, if you're sedentary, probably, you know, getting your serum ferritin in the 20s isn't too bad. If you're highly active, I would not recommend you go definitely not below 30. So I tend to like the Australian um, cut-off for deficiency. If you're, you know, if your serum ferritin is over 75, now, according to folks like the Iron Disorders Institute in America, who've really researched the whole iron thing, they recommend you maintain a serum ferritin level between 25 and 75, no lower than 25 and no higher than 75. And I would tend to concur with that. Trouble is, if you go to your doctor and your serum ferritin is say 180, 250, whatever, they, your doctor will look at that and he'll go, yep, your serum ferritin's fine, off you go. And, you know, you've then got a problem because he doesn't see that as an issue and, you know, you've got to lower that. If you want to be in the 75, 25 to 75 range, you need to lower that. He's obviously not going to order phlebotomy, you know, a series of phlebotomies because he doesn't see a problem. You can go to the Red Cross, but they'll only take out blood every what is it, two months to ten weeks or whatever. So if that's not enough to bring the serum ferritin down where you need it to be, then I guess the other alternative is either, you know, you start dating a nurse, you um, get yourself some IP6 and lower it down into the 25 to 75 range. So, you know, this, this requires people to be proactive. It requires them to be informed about iron and that's the whole problem. We need doctors to get on board and sort of be aware of this whole iron thing, to be aware of the research showing that, you know, they've actually done clinical trials that have reduced the heart disease risk, they've reduced the cancer risk through phlebotomy. We need doctors to be aware of that, sort of turn their attention away from all this sort of cholesterol, this whole cholesterol sham. It's, you know, it's had its opportunity to prove itself. It's proven itself to be a failure. We, you know, I think we need to give this whole iron... Um, thing a, a much closer look and I think you know if we pump more research into it and doctors start lowering people's serum ferritin levels into that sort of ideal range I think we'll see a lot of good things happening as far as public health goes um, Anthony sorry how common is it for people to have high levels of that premenopausal women generally tend to be you know under well under 75 they do tend to be because you know I've sort of got a circle that 
of you know people who I both see in person correspond with over the internet, and you know a lot of them sort of get this testing done. And premenopausal women, more often than not, do come fairly close to that you know that 25 mark that you know has been shown to be the mean level, average level for premenopausal women. Most men I've known, unless they're very highly active endurance type athletes, tend to be well over 100. Um, yeah, most of the postmenopausal haven't been a whole lot, but pretty much all the postmenopausal women I know of have been there, yeah, sort of 90 and over. So it is, it is common, and you know, it's a bit hard. One of the things that I find a bit frustrating with this iron thing, you know, I wrote the Great Cholesterol Con back in, well, I published it back in 2006. And sometimes, you know, I get emails about it or sometimes you see discussions on the internet and, you know, people talk about the, you know, I recommended things like fish oil and exercise and stress reduction and, you know, antioxidants and people sort of, they love the supplement bit, you know, because it's something you can just take and it's quick and easy. But, you know, to me, the most important chapter in that whole book is the iron, the iron chapter. And I actually changed the wording in the most recent edition to say, folks, this is probably the most important chapter of the book, so please listen up, you know, read carefully take note of what you're about to read because, you know, it's all well and good to pop a couple of fish oil caps a day and, you know, take extra antioxidants and there's nothing wrong with that and, you know, it'll more likely do you good than, you know, harm. But the iron thing to me is you're really doing something dramatic to really change the whole, to change your actual physiology. You know, iron is a So much so that they use it in laboratory studies, you know, when they want to actually trigger a, a free radical cascade in the, you know, in a petri dish or whatever, iron's one of the things they often inject in there to get the whole thing going. The other thing about iron, it's it's bacteria love iron. They they love sugar. One of the things they love is sugar, and one of the other things they love is iron. Bacteria, microbes absolutely feast on iron, and, you know, if you've got high iron levels, then you're going to be, I guess, giving these infectious microbes, I guess, an ideal sort of breeding ground and, you know, um, I guess this then gets into this sort of awareness of, you know, the role that infectious disease may play in actual degenerate diseases that we've actually often looked at as, as degenerative and maybe caused by other things, but, you know, there's increasing research to show that you know, infectious microbes may be playing a role in the, you know, the actual development of these diseases. So, Anthony, um, it, it's all really fascinating stuff. Can you give us an idea? Is there a theory behind why we might develop these high iron levels, other than obviously women shedding their blood? Why? What's the understanding as to why it's allowed to get, or why our body lets it get so high if it's harmful or dangerous? Well, I guess with, you know, if you, I guess. <laughs> You know, looking at it in this whole sort of paleo paradigm, when they look at hunter-gatherer populations, I guess back in the Stone Age, you know, I guess blood loss was a very real, you know, we didn't have tourniquets and sort of emergency medical care, so I guess blood loss back then was a very real, uh, you know, I guess risk of, you know, serious injury or death. So I guess back then there probably wasn't an incentive for the body to develop some sort of mechanism to regularly flush itself of excess iron, the other thing, when they examine hunter-gatherer populations, they often find a very high rate of hookworm infection, which increases iron loss. You know, increases iron loss from the through the stomach wall. You know, um, so yeah, I guess there's never been throughout evolution a you know a huge incentive for people to develop some kind of iron shedding mechanism, and. 
I guess the other thing is, you know, until recently, humans were fairly active creatures, so we also used up a lot of iron, you know, in being physically active, hunting and chasing after our food and sort of climbing up trees to pick things off the branches. And, yeah, it's only relatively recently in our history that we've become a, a sedentary population. We've, you know, markedly reduced the rate of or the burden from infectious diseases in the acute sort of burden from infectious disease. So, you know, the only, I guess, people now who really keep their serum ferritin or their bodily iron stores down to sort of low levels are, I guess, premenopausal women because they're shedding blood and hence iron on a, on a monthly basis. And also endurance athletes because, you know, the, I guess the oxygen demands of their sport, you know, uh, utilise a lot of iron in the process. When you look at strength athletes, they tend to have much higher serum ferritin levels than you know endurance athletes. So I guess yeah, endurance athletes who are sort of you know do a high volume of physical activity and premenopausal women, everyone else I guess just once they get out of sort of adolescence, men just tend to accumulate sedentary men will tend to accumulate bodily iron as they age. And yeah, once women hit menopause. I guess unless they're, you know, masters triathletes, they're not going to sort of be losing iron at any meaningful rate. They're just actually going to start doing the reverse, storing so, up on it like men do. Yeah. So it's something that, yeah, unless you're a highly active athlete there's, or, you know, a premenopausal woman, there's really no mechanism for your body to get rid of that excess iron. And, um, yeah, I guess that's something that's probably due to a number of factors, but I guess, yeah, the way we live our life, and, you know, a lot of our food too now, I guess, we eat a lot of iron-fortified cereals, um, so, yeah, I guess that's another contributing factor. And, and so, Anthony, there's kind of a bit of a move, I guess, at the moment of, for a lot of people away from the longer endurance athletics sort of events and more towards shorter interval training and, and more, I guess, uh, resistance activity. Um, you know, what's your thought on that whole movement then? Do you think that's gone too far or do you think there's, you know, needs to be a balance there? What, what are your thoughts? Yeah, my thoughts are pretty much what I think of any other either-or type sort of viewpoint. I like steady-state cardio. I think that has definite benefits and I think short sort of intense activity has its benefits and it kind of I don't understand why people always have to get into one camp or the other you know oh steady state endurance it's terrible it'll you know it's very catabolic and you end up looking like a toothpick and then you know you've got the other I guess the other extreme where oh, you know body you know bodybuilders and strength athletes that are unfit and this and that. And it's just like, why can't you guys just think, you know what, they both have benefits. There's benefits to steady-state cardio. There's yeah. benefits to, you know, picking up heavy objects and putting them down again. There's benefits to jumping on an ego and going flat out for 30 seconds, then taking a breather and doing it again. They all have their unique benefits. It's a bit hard to get the benefits of steady-state from, you know, I know you can boost anaerobic endurance with, or sorry, anaerobic, you know, fitness with sort of HIIT exercise, they've shown that, you know, you, you do it in a more time-efficient manner, but, you know, there's something to be said about getting out on a bike and going to the hills for a couple of hours and, you know, you're taking in fresh air, probably a lot fresher than what you get in some bank gym. Absolutely. You know, there's, I don't understand why people have to get so dogmatic and so sort of cult-like about their, you know, they attach themselves to 
a pet theory or, you know, they fall into one camp and it's like, that's it, I'm in this camp now and everything else is in theory and I'm now a big internet warrior for this particular belief and it's just like, I don't know, it's just, I, you know, go out, ride your bike, get into the hills or, you know, go for a walk along the path, you know, there's a lot of paths around there, go for a hike in the hills, whatever, whatever takes you, floats your boat. You know, if you want to, go help the leather in the gym, by all means, do that too. But I I prefer, when I prescribe programs, I like to get a bit of everything sort of going. You know, if you're, for example, I went to see Anamir's book launch last night, and, you know, Anamir's, you guys all know who Anamir's is, right? Yeah. Yeah, she's just an awesome female track sprinter. She just won gold at, you know, the London Olympics. She's just an amazing athlete. You know, someone like that who makes their living out of being fast and explosive and, you know, super powerful, they cannot afford to be going for two, three-hour bike rides because it will actually start to detrain them and, in effect, it will start to develop their, you know, start to impact on their fast-twitch makeup. You know, if she starts going for two-hour bike rides a few times a week, people like that obviously need to focus, have a very specific focus on their training so, yeah, she needs to sort of focus everything on just strength and power and being able to be as explosive as humanly possible. But I think for the average person, I think most people just do well to realise, you know what, there's benefits to be gained from sort of endurance-type activities. Yeah, you know, if you start running marathons every weekend, then you're probably going to start experiencing things like, you know, immune suppression and you're probably going to start to develop niggling injuries. But, you know, steady state, Cardio doesn't necessarily mean that you have to go run a marathon every weekend. It's just, once again, it gets back to this thing where, I don't know, people get into this extreme either-or mentality and, I don't know, me personally, I just want no part of that. I think that, you know, steady-state cardio has benefits. Um, Short, explosive activity has benefits. And I don't know, the example I like to use is it's a bit like arguing about whether blondes or brunettes are better. I mean, I don't sort of spend much time. I just enjoy the benefits of both. I mean, <laughs> uh, see why you need to sort of, you know, form a, that's actually probably not the best example. But, you know, <laughs> um, Anthony, Anthony, would you mind, um, we're, we're just running short on time. I'm sorry to cut you off there. I'm sure you could right. talk for, for an hour about that. But right, would you... Would you you mind just giving us some practical tips, going back to the diet um, with relation to the iron stores, would you mind just giving us some practical tips that our listeners can use to, um, and I suppose this would apply to post-menopausal women and men, since we're we're assuming that women are, pre-menopausal women are doing all right, but if you can give us some dietary tips or other lifestyle tips that people can at least start to get this under control? Uh, With the whole iron thing? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, with iron, I, I have to be perfectly clear. Before you do anything about iron, go to your doctor and get your iron levels checked. Because for me to start telling people, you know, for me to say to someone, I'll oh, lower your iron, you know, if that person's actually already got fairly low iron levels, then I'm actually giving them really bad advice. Now, if I'm talking to a male of adult age, chances are I'm going to be giving them good advice. But there is a there is the possibility that... Some men do have low iron levels and, you know, if you tell someone to lower their iron without really knowing where their iron levels are at, then you could actually be doing them a disservice. So before anyone does anything about their iron levels, go out, get them checked. 
if you are out of that sort of ideal 25 to 70 microgram per litre range of serum ferritin, you know, if you're below that, obviously you actually need to get your iron levels up. If you're over that, then, yeah, there's a few ways you can attack the problem. If The ideal way is um, phlebotomy, you know, blood withdrawal, because every time you take out around a half a litre of blood, you can count on about a 30 microgram per litre drop in your serum ferritin count. So it's a fairly predictable, reliable, you know, way to lower your um, your bodily iron stores. Um, but, you know, doing it via diet, there's things you can do like, I guess, um, things like green tea, you know, any tannin-containing food, foods that um, contain, you know, like egg whites. Um, green tea is one that I quite like. It actually lowers... They haven't actually established this in humans. I better add this caveat that they found in animal studies that lowers iron but actually enhances zinc absorption. So if that's replicated in humans, that's actually a pretty cool, pretty cool mechanism. But yeah, I really I think the most effective way is a phlebotomy and IP6 supplementation. Um, but you know, with IP6, you can take a teaspoon. I actually used it for a while and it did work quite well. I used a teaspoon on an empty stomach every morning. But as to how long and what dose and all the rest of it, you really need to be monitoring yourself. You know, every couple of months you need to go back and get your iron levels checked because you don't want to go into deficiency. You know, you don't want to overbleed or over-deplete your iron levels because if you've ever suffered iron deficiency or anemia, it really isn't a lot of fun. Everything just seems like a huge effort. So you really don't want to go there either. So, yeah, that's why... I'm really adamant before anyone does anything about their iron, go out and get your iron levels checked because otherwise, yeah, you're just pretty much shooting in the dark. You don't yeah, really know. So, so, um, so you say, I've gone out, I've got my blood test done, I'm certain that my blood uh, iron levels are too high. A phlebotomy, just to make sure I'm getting this clear, is a, a blood donation, right? So, Yeah. Now, let's say that you're... I don't know, let's say your um, your serum ferritin level was, say, 90. If you have a, a single phlebotomy, sorry, phlebotomy will bring you down to about 60. So that brings you into the into Normal the safe range. range. Yep. And then, yeah, if you... Because I think the Red Cross... I know in America and Australia, it's every one is every 10 weeks and one will only allow you to do it every eight weeks. I can't remember which is which. But basically, every two months, they won't let you have phlebotomy more frequently than every two months. Now, if you've got a really high serum ferritin, you're going to need, like, monthly or... If you're really... You know, like if you've got some pretty severe hemochromatosis going on, you know, that sometimes they even have weekly phlebotomies for those guys, those people. Yeah, wow. Well, you so, know what, even though, I mean, it's it's a double whammy, isn't it? It's good for you because you bring your iron down into a level that's reasonable for your body to function well, but it's also good for Australia's blood reserves, which is awesome. Well, for everywhere's blood reserves. That's the other thing it's a pretty often, humanitarian thing to do. Yeah, you, you often see in the paper, you know, those little notices, um, red crosses, and they have the particular blood types that they're really low on. We need people of this type to donate more blood. And I'm thinking, you know, we could totally, totally eradicate that problem overnight by, you know, if people started donating more blood to keep their iron levels in that sort of ideal range, that whole blood shortage, blood donation shortage would pretty much be, I'm sure, eradicated instantly. So, yeah, it's a humanitarian thing to do. If you go into the Red Cross and donate blood every couple of months, it's a, it's a good thing to do. But once again, just make sure that, you know, you need to be doing it, that you're not sort of on, you know, the borderline low range where, you know, you, you might be doing others a favour, but you might be doing yourself a favour if you become iron deficient or anemic. 
Yeah, Anthony, this has been just so informative, and I I haven't really heard anyone else talking about all this iron stuff, and I know we're just really um, excited to to look into it some more, but that comes to the end of our interview today. We're out of time, so I just want to let everyone know that if you want to know more about Anthony or you want to get a hold of his books, the books were called The Fat Loss Bible and The Great Cholesterol Con. I believe you sell those on your website, don't you, Anthony? Um, you can go to my website, and that'll link you through. If you want a Kindle ebook copy, you can go to Amazon. Um, and if you want a hard copy, you can actually there's links there that'll show you. But yeah, you can go through to Lulu, Lulu.com, and grab yourself a hard copy uh, version of those books. Yeah, so, wonderful. Yeah. And um, Anthony's website is anthonycolpo.com. A N T H O N Y C O L P O.com. Thank you so much, Anthony, and until next week, everyone, check us out on Facebook, share your story, and help to grow the Paleo Tribe worldwide. This has been a production of TheWellnessCouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on Facebook.com forward slash TheWellnessCouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Hi, Dr. Lawrence Tam here from The Wellness Guy Show. You know, the big ahas in life happen mostly when we're out of our normal, everyday environment, right? If you're in need of some big light bulb moments and want to do it in a very luxurious surrounding like Fiji, well, I got something for you. Alfred Chakros, Kim Morrison, Cindy O'Meara, Karen Smith, and my boys, the Damien Christoph, Brett Hill from The Wellness Guys, and myself will be hanging out at the Western Resort and Spa in Fiji. We'll love to have you to be part of our first BFO Wellness Retreat in September. We're taking a small group of people to immerse themselves in discovering life purpose, physical health, and well-being. It'll be three days and two nights of unforgettable memories, definitely some massive breakthroughs, and of course, we're going to have lots of fun. For more information or book your spot, please go to shop.thewellnesscouch.com. That's shop.thewellnesscouch.com, and we'll look forward to seeing you there. Take care.